Good morning, Winnetka Bible Church. Um, many of you know me by this point in time. My name is Harry Shields, and I'm delighted to be with you and delighted to serve as your interim pastor. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in to this online service that we have today. I'm so grateful that you are here, and I trust that you know that I am praying for you, even though I don't know many of you face-to-face, uh, -face, but I uh, know that you're part of this wonderful congregation. So know that I'm praying for you this week. This morning, I would like to talk to you about invitations, invitations that we receive. I don't know about you, but every day I go to my mailbox. And most days, there are a lot of different things in the mailbox. There are bills, there are notices, different things that I need to attend to. And frequently, there are invitations. For example, this past week, I got an invitation from uh, an investment company, a company apparently that is owned by a father and his daughter. And they were inviting me, along with many other people in the neighborhood, to come to uh, an investment dinner where I could learn new things about what I could do with the money that God has entrusted to me. I can probably tell you now that I will not attend that invitation, although I do appreciate that someone is interested in me. I get all kinds of invitations. About a month ago, I got an invitation from my good friends, Bruce and Sarah. Their daughter is getting married in August of this year. And the invitation that I got was uh, telling me to save the date. I'm sure you've gotten invitations like that as well. Put it on my calendar. There's a good possibility that I will attend that wedding in early August. We all get invitations like that. I also get invitations uh, on my email account. For example, uh, people will contact me and invite me to a Zoom meeting. It may be a Zoom meeting at a Moody Bible Institute, or it might be a Zoom meeting with the elders here at the church. I get invitations, and I am asked to respond to those invitations in one way or another. You have the same experience. Now, here's the thing with our invitations. Anytime they come, we have to make a choice of yay or nay. And my guess is if you're like me, one of the things that you will do is that you will decide on the basis of a lot of different things. You might make a decision to respond to an invitation in the affirmative, depending on whether or not you have the time. You might look at your calendar, you have some space, and you'll say, uh, yes, I think I could respond positively to this invitation. Or you might respond on the basis of your resources. Uh, someone might be inviting you to drive to another part of the country, and you'll say, do I have the resources? Do I have the funding? Can I do this? And you will respond in, respond in terms of what has been entrusted to you. And many times, you will respond to an invitation on the basis of who it is who is inviting you to something. For example, uh, you might uh, say, no, I'm not going to attend this class reunion because I haven't seen my classmates in years. I haven't really kept in touch with them. Or your boss might send you an invitation and you will say, yes, I better respond to this because it might favor me in terms of whether or not I will have a promotion or not. We respond to bosses sometimes on the basis of their authority. And sometimes you will respond to an invitation on the basis of a relative, a loved one, who asks you to do something. 
Let me put another little twist on this. What would you do if God extended an invitation to you? You might say, Harry, that's, that's something out of a movie. God doesn't really give me invitations. I would encourage you to rethink that. Because what we encounter whenever we come to the scriptures is that God invites us to a lot of different things. We'll look at some of those invitations this morning. But what would you do if God invited you to do something on his behalf? And remember, this is the creator of the universe. This is the God of life. This is the God who is sovereign over everything. So what would we do if God invited us to do something? To answer that question this morning, uh, I'm going to ask you to do something, the same thing I asked you to do last week. And that is, I think we need to go back to Egypt. No, I don't mean literally we need to go back to Egypt, but we need to go back to Egypt as we discover a very important historical narrative in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, you heard the scripture reading just a few moments ago, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I say let's go back to Exodus or go back to Egypt because several weeks ago we started a sermon series in this church. The first part of the sermon series we called Into Egypt and we titled it that because we wanted to try to determine from God's perspective, from the word of God, why was it that the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, how did they end up in Egypt and how did they end up in bondage? And then we kind of took a little turn in that sermon series and we are trying to discover now how is it that the people of Israel came out of Egypt. So we're titling this sermon series Out of Egypt. When we look at these accounts, I want to encourage you to think about something this morning. I want you to think about that we're not just looking at a nice story, an engaging story. We're not just looking at something that I believe actually happened in history and time. But I want us to see that God is speaking to us through this story. When he speaks to us, he gives us information that sometimes we don't like to use this term, but it's an important term. When he speaks to us, he is giving us theology. And that's what we're going to discover this morning in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The thing about theology is that it reveals God. It reveals God in terms of who he is. It re uh, reveals God in terms of his actions, his ways, and it reveals what God wants to say to us in a very personal way. So that's why we're going back to Egypt and why we're going to Exodus chapter 3. Specifically, we want to try to answer this question, what do we do when God gives us a very special invitation? Now, to discover the answer to that question, here's what I would like us to do. For example, I'd like us to take some time and to make some observations about this passage of Scripture. So we'll start with the passage. On the other side of making those observations, we're going to discover a principle. We're going to discover theology. What I hope you will take with you into this afternoon, into Monday morning, and into the rest of your life. And then after we discover that principle, we need to take some time to say, how will we practice that? That is, what does God want us to do with this principle? What would it look like in our lives? So that's where we're headed. We're going to look at this passage, going to discover a principle on the other side of the principle. We'll determine what are the implications, the practices that we might follow with respect to that principle. So let's look at this text. 
I want you to notice that we could divide this text into about four different observations. And again, like last week, I've given these different observations a title. I want you to know that in this account that you heard read just a moment ago, that there is a visitation. That's the first thing that I want you to see. A visitation is taking place, and we discover that in verses 1 and 2. Now, in this visitation, we're going to discover it is an inv- or, excuse me, it is a visitation to someone. Uh, it, uh, the, in this visitation, someone is coming to another individual. And then on the other side of that, we're going to see that this visitation is something that takes place in a rather dramatic way. For example, in verse 1, I want you to notice that the visitation takes place with a being towards someone who is a broken individual. Here's why I say it. Now Moses, verse 1, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. Now I know you will not see the expression there that says that uh, Moses was a broken man, but he was. Think back with what we discovered in Exodus chapter 2. Exodus uh, was, excuse me, Moses was born into uh, a Hebrew family, a family from the tribe of Levi. And at that time, the Pharaoh had said that uh, all of the male children in Israel were to be destroyed, were to be murdered. But God's special hand was upon Moses and he protected him. And you may remember that Moses was placed in this little basket, this ark. And then he was placed in the Nile River And he was discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh. And she had compassion in him and wanted to take him uh, into her family. As Moses grew, he realized that he was being raised in the court of Pharaoh. He was being raised like uh, other Egyptian children, but he was still a Hebrew. And one day, as he looks out on his own people, the Israelites... Uh, being oppressed in a variety of different ways. He has compassion on them and he goes out and he murders one of the Egyptian slave masters. Moses at that point in time becomes a murderer and then he becomes a man on the run and eventually he ends up here in Midian. He's no longer a prince of Egypt. He's no longer even seen as a Hebrew, no longer being seen as maybe an intelligent man, a skilled man. Moses has become a man on the run who now settles down in Midian. But I say he's a broken man. Notice that it says that he is watching the flock of his father-in-law. That is, he has become a shepherd. If he ever thought about going back to Egypt, he would probably have great shame because Egyptians looked down upon shepherds, wanted nothing to do with them. And so for Moses to ever think about going back to Egypt, he would have to go back as a broken man. Notice also, apparently, he has not accumulated much in the way of wealth because he is watching his father-in-law's sheep, almost as if he is a hired hand of his father-in-law. He is a broken man. And probably at that point in time, he is thinking about all that has happened in his life. Many years have transpired, and now as he gets older, he's thinking, maybe I will die in this land. This is where I will need to be. I suggest to you that Moses was a broken man. And so this visitation takes place with a broken individual. But would you also notice in verse 2 that this visitation takes place in a rather miraculous way? Here's why I say that. Verse 2 says, 
And the angel of the Lord, you want to make note of that phrase, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, this is a very significant statement and we'll come back to it at the end of this message today. But I'd like to suggest to you that what we discover that's happening in this passage is that this visitor comes. He is referred to, first of all, as the angel of the Lord. Talk more in just a moment about what that means. Uh, We can also think about this uh, as the angel being a messenger, a messenger of the Lord, because that's what angels were. But we're going to discover this is more than just a spiritual being identified as an angel, very special being that's taking place. And the way in which he appears is miraculous. Moses looks out and he sees that a bush is burning. That may have been a a common experience in the ancient world. Lightning could strike up on a mountainside. A, A bush could be put aflame and it would burn within a matter of seconds. But as Moses gets closer, he discovers that this bush is not being consumed. And so it piques his curiosity and he starts to move closer. And he realizes that something is very different at this point in time. Moses is a visited individual. He's being visited in his brokenness. He's being visited in a very unusual, dramatic, miraculous way. So make note of the fact that we first see that a visitation takes place. There's a second thing that I want you to notice about this passage. And that is, following the visitation, there is identification that's being made. Specifically of that one in verse 2 that is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And we see this identification uh, beginning in verse 3, going all the way through verse 6. Now, uh, the identification is very interesting because I had already made reference to the fact that it's the angel of the Lord who comes to him. But who is this angel of the Lord? Would you make note of what happens in verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Verse 4 says this, When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Now notice the sequence here. In the visitation, the one that's being identified is the angel of the Lord. Following that, Uh, He is referred to as the Lord. Later on, we're going to discover that that phrase, that title, is of God, specifically of God who is the delivering one, the God who comes to rescue. That's who the Lord is. He is Yahweh, the Savior. But but not only that is he referred to as the Lord, but in the second part of verse 4, he is referred to as God. Now, that should tell us something at, at this point in time. It should tell us that the angel of the Lord is God, is deity. He's referred to as the Lord, the one who is the Savior. And then later on, he is God who is speaking to Moses. I'd like to suggest something to you. And that is this angel of the Lord, this Lord, this God, is none other than the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. He's appearing in all of his purity, appears in fire, and the fire is not consuming the bush, and and Moses sees all of this. So he is identified as God. I'm suggesting to you it's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who is appearing to Moses. But the identification continues. Would you look at verse 5? Because we discover that this God, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, is holy. How do we know that? 
Verse 5 says, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is a holy place, and and Moses is discovering this. In fact, the voice says to him, do not come any farther. In fact, he's told to take off his sandals. In the ancient world, in the Middle East, that was quite common. Even today, if someone comes to what they think is a sacred place, they will take off their shoes, they will take off their sandals, because they are in the presence of deity. And Moses is discovering this as well. And it's holy ground, not because some human being has said, well, we're going to designate this as a holy place. No, it's holy because God is there. Let me to jump ahead just for a moment, because one of the things that we discover from New Testament theology is that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit, we are told, lives within us. Now, now think about that for a moment. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, That means that everywhere you go, God is with you and you are in the presence of God. And that makes that place holy ground. Not because you have said it's holy ground, but because God is in that place. And that's what Moses is discovering. He is in a holy place because God is there with him. But notice something else. God identifies himself even further in verse 6. And he said... I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. I wonder why in the world he hid his face. It's almost as if he's standing there and all of a sudden something hits him and he experiences shame. He knows that he's in the presence of the God of the covenant. How Moses understood all of that, we do not know. It's a good possibility that before his own mother... Jacobed turned him over to the daughter of Pharaoh, that she probably said different things. She whispered different things to him early in the morning and maybe even in the evening before he fell asleep, reminding him that he was a child of the God of Israel. And maybe she recited the covenant and Moses, even as a little boy, he remembers all of those things. He's speaking to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant. And way back in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 15, God says, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you and your offspring. And I want you to understand that I, Abraham, am going to bring from you a child. In fact, I'm going to bring uh, many offspring. You're going to become a great nation and that nation is going to bless all of the earth. And Abraham, God said to him, I am even going to give your offspring a land. We'll come back to that. We'll see that in Exodus chapter 3. So the God is the God of the covenant, but it becomes even more personal. Did you notice there in verse 6 where God says to him, I am the God of your father. And your father has a God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the covenant God. He is the covenant-keeping God. So what we discover is that this is holy ground. And the one who is speaking to Moses is identified as as God, the God of the covenant, the God who is holy in all of his ways. So notice what is happening in this historical narrative. There is a visitation. Moses encounters God. He is identified as very God, a very God, and he is holy in all of his ways. And he is the God who has made a covenant with the people that Moses is ultimately going to lead. 
Make a third observation in this passage. After the visitation and after the identification, there is also a clarification. And here's what I mean by that. To understand the clarification, I would ask you to look back at Exodus chapter 2. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. They cried out to the living God. You know what happens when people experience long-term suffering? They ask why. Why is this happening to me? Why is this taking place at this point in my life? God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, do you hear us? Maybe even now you're asking that kind of question wherever you might be. And God comes along and he clarifies, he verifies certain things for us. I want you to notice in verse 7 and verse 9 what God says to Moses. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Or drop down to verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Two times in this narrative, God says to Moses, I know. And Moses, I want to clarify to you, you might think I have forgotten you and your people. I have not. I want to clarify to you that I understand your sufferings. I know where you are. I know what your people are experiencing. So there's a clarification about God's concern for his people. But look at verse 8. In verse 8, we are told that God still has a plan for these suffering people. Verse 8 says, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice that God says in this clarification that he understands what the people are going through, and he's saying to them, I will deliver them. Please don't overlook that. God is the one who's going to be the deliverer. And so God comes and he visits Moses. He identifies who he is, and then he begins to clarify and verify the fact he has not forgotten the covenant promises, and he is going to act. He is going to deliver them. But then there's a fourth observation, and it's perhaps the most dramatic of all. It's the one thing that you may remember about early stories that you heard about Moses. It begins in verse 10 and goes all the way through verse 12. I'm calling this an invitation. That's how we started this sermon today. That There's an invitation, and what happens if God gives an invitation to us? Would you notice in verse 10 that this invitation... Uh, is calling Moses into a partnership. How do we know that? Verse 10 says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, wait a minute. I thought in verse 8 we read that God is the one who's going to be the deliverer. And now all of a sudden he says, Moses, you're going to deliver them. What's really happening, God is saying, Moses, I'm inviting you. Come into a partnership with me. Because we are going to see great and mighty things that will take place. Moses, come. I'm inviting you to be my partner. 
But that partnership is followed with protest. Look at verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses forgets all of his training that he had in the, the palace of the Pharaoh. He forgets that maybe he has some advantages over other people, even over, the, over other Hebrews. He forgets all of that and he says, who am I? He's probably implying, I'm a mere shepherd. I'm, I'm a nobody. The Egyptians will look down at me. They will probably even spit in my face. On one hand, Moses is right. He is offering up a legitimate protest to this partnership that he's being called into. But would you notice that God responds to that, as God is going to respond throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4 of this book. Uh, here's what he says in, in verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. Please don't miss that. God says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you. The important thing I want you to see is that God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm going to be with you. Yes, I'm inviting you into a, uh, into a partnership. You're going to protest and say, you're not qualified. You're not ready to do this. But Moses, I'm going to be with you all the way. And this is going to come to pass. And just to put a stamp of approval on this, God says something else. Uh, look in the middle of verse 12 where he says, And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. When Bible scholars look at the middle part of verse 12, they, they debate, they, they're challenged over, what does it mean? Well, what sign is, is God giving to Moses? And it seems with an initial reading that the sign is, once you bring the people out, you're going to come to this mountain, to Mount Sinai, to Mount Oreb. This is where you're going to be, and it'll be the sign that, that I've been with you. My response to that is, how can that be encouraging to Moses? A sign that, that's up ahead. He hasn't even seen it yet, so, so why should he trust God? Perhaps the sign is something else. Perhaps the sign is everything that Moses has experienced. A visitation, an identification, a verification. And now he's saying, Moses, everything that you have just seen, and he's going to see more things in the rest of the chapter, everything that you have seen, this is a sign to you that I will be with you. And then it goes on to say, and you're really going to see it at that point, when you come to this mountain, you're going to know that everything that I have said to you is absolutely true. So what are we to make of this? I said to you at the outset that this is a wonderful story. I believe it's a true story. It's a historical narrative telling us what happened in the life of Moses. But this is also theology, and it is for you. It is for you in your everyday experiences. It's for me in everything that I will face in life. I also said to you that this angel of the Lord in verse 2 is more than just an angelic messenger. A messenger, yes, but the one who appeared to Moses is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The one that we read in, in the Gospels. All four of the Gospels, Jesus comes on the scene, God in flesh and blood, and he says to people, come, follow me, follow me. And they start to follow him, and the more that Jesus begins to teach and, and display in miraculous ways who he is, people begin to respond, and they understand that this 
truly was the promised Messiah. I am suggesting to you that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and this is the one who is speaking to, Je uh, speaking to Moses, and he is speaking to us as well. If you remember anything, this is what I will hope you remember from this message today. And that is, whatever Jesus asks you to do, he will be there with you to accomplish it. Whatever Jesus calls you to do, he will be powerfully present with you to complete it, to bring it to pass. Now, if that's true, if Jesus is always going to be with you in whatever he asks you to do, and he'll be there to help you to complete it, how should we respond to this? Let's consider three questions. That is, we, we ought to ask ourselves, where, where is Jesus with us? That's a good question to ask. And then I'd like to ask the question, um, what is he asking us to do? And then finally, how are we going to do it? That first question is we try to practice this principle in our lives. It is the question of uh, where is, is Jesus with us? I've already alluded to, the, to this, but uh, the answer is everywhere, everywhere. Consider what Jesus said to his disciples prior to his departure, prior to his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. Jesus said to the disciples, I am going to send a, a, a helper to you, a, another comforter. And then he said in uh, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, he will not only be with you, he will be in you. We have other information throughout the New Testament that we are told that the Holy Spirit, the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will teach us everything that we need to know about Jesus, this Holy Spirit will not only be with us, he will be in us. So imagine that. That means that um, if you were to return to work this week, or even if you are doing work out of your home, Jesus is right there with you if you are a Jesus follower. Or if you were to walk across the street to, to meet your neighbor, to say something to your neighbor, to encourage your neighbor, Jesus would be right there with you. It means that uh, if you have to make a hard decision this week, and sometimes in making that decision you feel like you're all alone, there's no one really to advise you, Jesus is right there with you. Because whatever Jesus asks you to do, he is powerfully present to bring it to pass. So if Jesus is with us, and he's with us everywhere, what's he asking us to do? Again, the answer to that is many different things. Let's start with one of the most important things, one of the most important commands, one of the most important invitations that Jesus gives to his followers. We find it in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. I like the way it begins because Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. All authority. Jesus has more authority than any president, any politician, any prime minister, any dictator. Jesus has more authority. And Jesus says, all authority, all authority has been given unto me. And then he goes on to say, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things I have commanded you. Now, notice how it ends. And Jesus says, Behold, I will be with you even to the end of the age. The very same thing that he said to Moses. Moses, I'm going to be with you. 
I'm the deliverer, but I'm calling you into a partnership and you will be working with me in the process. Jesus is saying the same thing to you. If you are a Christ follower, then what Jesus is saying is that he's inviting you to take the gospel and to make disciples of all nations, to go to the ends of the earth. For some of us, that may mean walking across the street. It may mean talking to a friend at work. It may mean meeting someone in a social gathering. But wherever we are, Jesus is with us, and he is asking us to join him in making disciples. And we could protest and say, but I, I don't think I can do that. I, I'm not articulate. I'm, I, I'm not a, a trained speaker. And Jesus says, I will be with you. He will help us. He will engage us in, in conversations with other people. He's going to be with you. So that whatever he asks you to do, whatever he invites you to do, he'll bring it to pass. There's something else that, that Jesus is asking us to do. Perhaps it's, it's one of those things that fits under what we call the, the great commandment. And Jesus basically says in, in John chapter 15 in, in verse 12, even as I have loved you, so you should love one another. We can recite verses like that. Practicing them is altogether different. Sometimes we'll say, well, yeah, I know we're supposed to love other people, but Harry, uh, there's some people in the church that just rub me the wrong way. There are some people that I worry. I, I just don't really care to be around them. And we make excuses. This past week, I got a phone call from a gentleman who is now in a category of being a former pastor. And he called me because he was looking for some people to pray with him. And I was invited into that prayer team. And so he called and for one hour, one hour, he told me his story. He grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, they eventually made their way to New York. He grew up in the city of New York and he worked with his father uh, in planting a church. And that church started to grow, it became a, a large congregation. And over the years, his father would say to this son, uh, son, someday you're going to be the senior pastor. And, and sure enough, after uh, some time in Bible college and some other training, this man, he joined the staff. And, and he did all kinds of things in the church. And so that time came about 33 years later when he became the senior pastor of the church. And I can't go into all the details except to say to you that something happened between the father and the son and the father started working against this son who became the senior pastor. And it became so nasty, uh, so filled with evil that father and son are now uh, separate from one another, alienated from one another. And sides have been formed and this man has even walked away from his ministry because of the antagonism that he has had with his father. As I was thinking about this, and if I were to say to this pastor, can I ask you something? Would, would you ever be open to loving your father the way Jesus has loved you? Would you ever be open to forgiving your father the way Jesus has forgiven you? He might protest. I, I couldn't do that. Both of us have attorneys right now. We, we, we can't really make changes. But, but Jesus says, whatever I am asking you to do, whatever I'm inviting you to join me in doing, I'll be there with you to bring it to pass. Jesus calls us to make disciples. Jesus calls us to love one another. Many of you watching this are uh, parents. And one of the things that uh, Jesus asks us to do in his word 
is to train up our children in the way that they should go so that later on uh, they will not depart from that way. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, um, uh, teach your children, train your children, and don't exasperate them. And, and we could respond and say, well, you don't know my children. Uh, they're a little bit uh, active, and, and sometimes it's very difficult. No, I'll leave that to the Sunday school. I'll leave that to the Christian school or something else. And, and yet Jesus says, I'm asking you, I'm asking you as a parent to train up your children. You see, whatever Jesus asks us to do, he is powerfully present to bring it to pass. He's there with us. What, whatever he calls us to do, he's going to complete it in and through us because he's present. If that's true, where is he present? He's present everywhere. What is he asking us to do? He's asking us to make disciples. He's asking us to love one another. He's asking us to nurture and train our children and disciple other people. I could go on and on because there are a number of invitations that God gives to us. But that leads to a third question, and that is, how are we going to do this? Uh, do we trust? Yeah, we need to trust. Here's a word that I would like you to remember. It's the word refocus. About every three months, uh, I go to my eye doctor. And uh, he takes me through a series of tests uh, and does a personal exam. And, and just to make sure that my vision has stabilized. I've done that so many times that I know the routine. I know as soon as I go into the clinic, uh, there is a nurse that's going to call me into a room and, and she's going to put some drops in my eyes. And she'll ask me just to wait there for a few moments. And, and then she'll say, okay, I want you to uh, put this uh, over one of your eyes and then I want you to look at the letters on the screen. And so she'll start to ask me, what do I see on a certain line? Now here's what happens invariably. I'll start to look at that and I have to blink uh, two or three times just to make sure that my eyes will come into focus. Uh, we have to do that a lot of times. Sometimes when we're driving down a highway, uh, we might glance across the way and we see something and it, it kind of grabs our attention and then we look back and all of a sudden we have to refocus on what is in front of us. Every day we have to refocus on something and you're going to have to refocus on what Jesus is saying to you. And so when you refocus, you and I need to look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect God, the Savior of the world who has come into the world to rescue you. Uh, not only that, Jesus has come into the world to call us to partner with him. And so we need to refocus on the things that are important, the primary things of life. And the primary things of life have to do with anything, anything that Jesus invites us to do. Whatever Jesus asks of you, whatever he asks of me, he's going to be present to bring it to pass. I'm thinking right now that there are probably a couple of things that are going on for those of you who are watching this sermon today. There's one group of people that have been hanging around the faith for a number of years. And what I mean by that, you probably know this story inside out. You know other things in the Bible, and, and you're thinking about this, and maybe you're saying this morning, uh, what is it that Jesus is asking of me? Yes, to make disciples? Is he asking me to love? Is he asking me to forgive? Uh, what is it that he's asking of me? And I want you to hear again that if Jesus is giving you an invitation today, he's going to be right there with you to bring it to pass. He'll give you the resources that you need. He will give you the strength that you need. 
He will transform your life in the process. But for those of you who have followed Jesus for a number of years, he's there with you. Listen to him. Obey him. Trust him. But there are some other people that may be watching this message today, and the Spirit of God is saying to you that perhaps you are not really a Christ follower. You have never heard the voice of Jesus in the sense in which you have responded to him. And the message of the Word of God is this, that all of us come into this world as sinners. That's not just you, that's me as well. We're born into sin. We, we function for, for years as sinners. And then we come to realize that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the wrath of God is against us. How do we escape? How, how do we uh, escape? How are we delivered from the wrath of God? And the answer to that is that Jesus, very God of very God, took upon himself human flesh, came into the world, and ultimately went to the cross to die in your place and in my place. And dying for us, God says that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven and our eternal life will begin at that point in time. And then we can follow Jesus all the days of our lives because his spirit lives within us. If you have never said yes to Jesus, if you have never trusted him as the Lord and Savior of your life right now, I'm going to ask you to trust him. I'll pray for you in just a moment. But as you trust him, know that he is a God of love, a God of hope, and he's inviting you to join him in a life of richness and fullness. May God give you the grace to trust him today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of this passage of Scripture. I'm praying for myself today that I will never forget, Holy Spirit, never let me forget that you are present with me always. And so whatever you invite me to do, making disciples, loving others, even when that's difficult, speaking into the lives, even though that might be difficult, thank you for being with me. Thank you for being with those who are watching this message today. I pray for Winnetka Bible Church, Father, that uh, you would strengthen us as a congregation so that we might make the kind of impact that will be glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I pray today, Father, for those who are listening that are trying to make that important decision to trust Jesus. Give them the grace, give them the strength to say yes to Jesus today, to trust him and him alone for forgiveness and for eternal life. Thank you for hearing us. We praise you in Jesus' name.